Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 146 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. And you know, I say that every week. I never say anything about what the Strauss Center is. Look it up. The Robert Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's pretty cool. Anyway. You want people to do research? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to do it. It's Wednesday, December 4th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and as we speak, it's it's Con Law Day in the in the House Judiciary Committee <laughs> Impeachment Fest. Yay! I would say, as someone who has been mooted in it for a Supreme Court argument by Pam Carlin, oh, Nelly, I don't think the Republican members of the House Judiciary Committee are quite ready for her. Um, it is. Uh, have you been watching any of it this I've morning? I've been watching like bits and bits and pieces of it. the The opening statements were, I think pretty um, telling in both directions, both the, I thought um, Noah Feldman, Pam Carlin, Mike Carhart, I thought their statements were quite good, and I thought Jonathan Turley's statement was long. Well, I don't expect his you to dog, do. His dog is mad. I certainly, his dog is mad. Uh, that was a prominent feature of his of his statement, both his written and oral testimony. I will have to dig into this because I'm not tracking it, but uh, I will say that these are all, you know, serious experts, don't you think? Uh <laughs> Are you going to bag on, on Jonathan Turley now? I will just encourage... Because I assume you're not bagging on... Wait, 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 bag on him now? When have I defended Jonathan Turley? I would just encourage I didn't people... Say, I didn't mean to say you did. I would just encourage people to put Turley's testimony today side by side with his testimony in 1998 during the impeachment of Bill Clinton and ask whether that sounds like it's consistent. It will be something that and just, surely just will be done do in it, detail. Do, do it yourself. Like, don't, you know, even if you don't trust me or... Bobby, I don't know why you wouldn't trust Bobby or or other <laughs> media outlets. Like, just put his statements by, side is, by side. Is there actually? I mean, because I have not looked at this. Yeah. Is there something like clearly contrary in this testimony to what he said before with Clinton? So it's not like like where where was he on the Clinton? Li- I've not. Oh, followed. he was pro. He was. We have to. You know, impeachment is an important way of holding the president to account. Blah blah blah. Now, you know, I, there's a way to wiggle out of it by saying it's you know he's making a factual assessment that's changed, but. I think if you read the statement side by side, you see two um, very different takes on the on the role of impeachment and holding a president to account. Is he saying that like lying under oath is, is like relatively clear as a as a violation of federal law, whereas what happened here is whatever it was was is he saying it's like murky? It's yeah, mur- I think that's the I that's think that's the most the... charitable way to right. look at his testimony. Well, there you go. Not having read it, I will uh, not say anything further. Obviously, we are planning to have a little bit of Trump Landia discussion today. We've just begun it. We will talk about this a little bit more. We will talk about related matters like the uh, the House Intel Committee's uh, report, um, and we'll talk about the big decision in the the subpoena to Deutsche Bank. I think not surprising. And Capital One. And Capital, Capital One always gets left out of this. It's more fun to say Deutsche Bank. Oh, I know it is. Capital One, what's in your wallet? A subpoena. <laughs> I was going to say multiple. Oh, actually, multiple. That, show title. What's, what's in, in your, your wallet? wallet? A, a subpoena. subpoena. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Write that down. I don't have a pen. Here's a, I have like 14. Here, here you go. All right. Um, um, all right. So after that, we'll talk wait about. Wait here. Use my, use my DHS CFO new hire training pen. Hold on. I'm inspecting the pen he just handed me. DHS CFO new hire training? I don't want to know where now, you got that. That was a gift from a friend of the podcast, actually. This feels re-gifty. <laughs> well, okay, re-gifty. Uh, a gift that they pulled off their desk on their way out to, you know, something. Um, so <clears throat> impeachment stuff is going on. Impeachment stuff is continuing to go on. But there's actually other stuff going on. Yeah, we've got um, an interesting, a really interesting development in a case we last talked about in episode 116, I believe. Uh, Adam Hassoun. I looked that up. Yeah, OVT. Hey, we both did research. Whoa. Yeah. Something to do with different. Actually, I discovered uh, we don't. I you don't discovered think- research? <laughs> I'll never discover that. I discovered that on our podcast homepage, uh, I don't think we have a, a search bar. 
to, to like go through our tags and such. I think you have to like, you just have to work Google into it. That um, sounds like a, a task for the person in charge of our website. Yes, it does. He's going to get right on that. Okay. All right. Um, this is, you know, we we're, we're sort of mysterious about how we divide the labor in this in this podcast. Basically, if it's if it's if it's the website, it's Bobby, right? And if it's like the technical production of the podcast, it's me, and that's basically it. Yeah, that's it. And of course, when we say the website's Bobby, that means that I reach out to the guy that exactly. we use at the Stress exactly. Center, who who's fantastic, by the way. Uh, uh, the company is Inspry. Let's plug them. I N S P R Y. They can design websites for you if you like the look of. The Strauss Center page, the Clement Center page, the Intelligence Studies Project page, all the national security stuff at UT. Um, Matt and his team at Inspire do a great job. So, hey, free Fun. advertising. I was going to say. Hey, I think that, that was that, our that, first ad. the first ad we've ever had on this show? Yeah, we, we didn't charge for it, though. That's, a, that's that, a pretty oh, lousy ad. You know, we're really doing it. We're doing it all wrong. And maybe if we cut us a break on That's also an episode title. We're doing it all wrong. Well, that's that's the, that's a more of a motto than a title. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, What's okay. a motto with you? <laughs> is, there, is there a responsive line I'm supposed to give? Oh, <laughs> No. No. All right. No. Uh, after we talk about Adam Hassoun and uh, his uh, new status of detention, which is very interesting, yeah. um, we will talk about what is apparently in the works uh, in the realm of foreign terrorist organization designations. We're told by the president, who told it to Bill O'Reilly, uh, that there's going to be Mexican cartel designations. This is a story that has, has deep roots. We'll touch base with it. Um, and then we have a few National Security Division updates. We have not done that lately. It's not going to be comprehensive since the last time we've done it. We're just going to hit on a few recent cases. And then we really are going to try our best to end under an hour because you, Steve, have a hard stop anyways. But before uh, actually, we go to, go... to go to a Westlaw trading session. To a Westlaw... To, what? Explain. There's Explain stuff, there's yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's apparently some cool new search features in the Westlaw whatever the newest version of Westlaw is. And our our awesome, uh, one of our awesome librarians, Matt Steinke, yeah. um, is doing a, a faculty training session at lunch today. Okay, that actually sounds like it could be good. I went to one that was not done by awesome Matt or anyone else from our awesome library team, but was done by somebody from a vendor no. for either Westlaw no. or Lexus one time. No. It, I was like, I ha- so, so <laughs> I, let's just say I got an urgent call. That invitation <laughs> goes into my, my, my delete folder. Yes. But when Matt writes and says, hey, guys, there's some cool new search features that actually might make your research better, and yeah. I'm going to feed you and show you what they are, I say, yes, please. Yeah, okay. Well, then I will be efficient. I will still go out and get pizza at lunch and then ask you later. So how does this work? Excellent. Um, and then we'll wrap we up. Have, we do have some frivolity. We do, because as we've been doing, we've been reviewing the Mandalorian episode by episode. We uh-huh. won't say anything for fear of spoilers here. Other than, other than, uh, right? Other than. Um, that the Ringer, the, the Ringer, uh, Dear Baby Yoda, um, is pretty good. Oh my, can you, can you sing it for us? So this is, yeah. To the, the tune to, of. To the tune of Dear Theodosia from Hamilton, right. right? These two guys basically did, uh, uh, did Dear Baby Yoda based on the first, what, four episodes of The Mandalorian. Dear Baby Yoda, what, what to say to So you. my favorite line is, um, yeah, big um, when they get to ta- Tatooine, son, it really has two sons. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. If you haven't seen that, you got to check it out. Um, it's almost as good as the Star Trek Next Generation uh, um, Christmas Carol clip. Oh, yeah. I'll send you that. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Know, where they splice together right? yeah, yeah. the actual people saying, yeah. Yeah, it's so great. Um, speaking of, of both sci-fi and movies, I saw a movie. In the movie theater. I'm just floored. You actually got out. I mean, yes, because we took Maddie. Thanksgiving morning. And what did you go see? Frozen 2. (laughs) All right. Listen, don't at me, people. Frozen 2 goes on the list of sequels that are better than the original. 
Challenge accepted. And it is a it is a short list, but it is a list. All right, so that's frivolity for next week, unless we've already done that. I think we probably have. I'm sure. But, you but, know, there's no reason not to do it again. So it's, you know, it's Godfather Part Two. It's Terminator Two. Right. You know, a couple others. Yeah. Okay. Save this for frivolity. Okay. I got I got opinions on that. Um, I've not seen it yet, but I have no doubt that uh, with oh three, Star Trek Two. Yeah. Oh well, that's the, <laughs> the principle of even numbered Star Treks is is like this. You know. A, an axiom. Indeed. Um, okay, so we'll we'll get to all that. Uh, let's start Final, off. Can I say one more yeah, frivolity thing? Yeah. Have you been? Have you have you watched Watchmen? No, I've not. Do you recommend? I do. I right. do. It's 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 different, but it's it's good. Yeah, I'm seeing good reviews. I, yes, we'll see. I, uh, I didn't. This, this week's episode was quite a. There was quite a twist in this week's episode, so uh, I'm, I'm still fascinating. Re- and and now the crown. So Karen and I are in that period between the end of having finished season three of The Crown. And marvelous Mrs. Maisel drops Friday, so, so you're like watching. I've got a couple stuff. days to watch my stuff. Well, you'll be glad to know I'm still halfway through the first episode, season three of the, the Crown. I don't know how you do it. Um, Trumplandia. Basically, I don't know how they do it. Yeah, Trumplandia. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so what do you want? What What is to be said that's not obvious about the House Intel report? How about this? How about <laughs> this? In trouble. Ru- well, so Rudy says, you know, what What's this surveilling an American's how like, call you, records? How dare you surveil our phone records? Okay, what is that in reference to, and what is the answer as to why it's legal or potentially legal, or what do we not know to tell us whether it's legal? So the House Intelligence Committee report. I mean, I think the most damning new stuff in there is all the stuff about phone records. Um, some of which, you know. I don't know who minus one is, but if minus one is Trump, who boy? Um, but Explain. Even, um, there are a lot of phone calls on, in, on at the rel- at the relevant moments in the narrative where you know the allegations are that Trump was you know working behind the scenes to conspire and to get you know and all these claims that Rudy wasn't talking to Trump and was off on a frolic and a detour. Oh yeah, no, no, that's. Um, Right. Well, and, and I gather there's there's calls with with Nunes and uh, and what's Nunes. his face. Oh, the, uh, right. The, New, oh, that so that that's who also is up in the House Intelligence Committee's report. The you know, ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee in ha- taking phone calls with uh, Giuliani and Parnas both. <laughs> you know, the, the just just an indicted felon and a soon to be indicted felon. Well, yeah. Um, there's that. There's no, I did. There's I did no see him <laughs> trying to walk away from. Saying, ah, I'm not sure who that is. I mean, I know he is now because I already got indicted. But I mean, who knows who who but called this, me? But so this was the latest like faux outrage among the you know crazy righties yesterday was you know f- how did they get the phone records? So Charlie Kirk, always a sober a sober interlocutor, right, says break him. Impeachment investigators got a hold of Rudy Giuliani's private phone records. Is this legal? Rudy is a private citizen. I want to see Adam Schiff's phone records and all his communications with the whistleblower. <laughs> RT, if the Senate should subpoena them immediately. Of course, right after he's questioning a subpoena, he turns around and says, subpoena other people. Right, right. Well, setting that <laughs> aside and not falling too much into the mugs game wait, of wait, responding more, line a, by line to Charlie Kirk. Okay, there's a better one. Tom Fitton, right, the, the what the judicial watch guy. Um, break him. House Democrats somehow obtained Rudy Giuliani phone records somehow. in a remarkable abuse of real Donald Trump's constitutional rights. He's a lawyer. He, this is, he is, this is, ugh. Uh, but see, when you have that reaction, that's what he wants from you, my friend. No, 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 no. He doesn't give a crap about me. He wants to be able to, pro- he wants to be able to sort of perpetuate the narrative. Right, right, right. No, this no, is, I, this I agree. This is not I about agree. me. This is about, this is well, about. Well, it's both because your, your frustration is a reflection of him having done something that's a, a narrative move that's not remotely reflective of the law or sense or rationality that's designed to gin up ba- enthusiasm in the base, right? Fear, anxiety, narratives, what have you, right? And, and it's all cover up. It's a conspiracy. It's a it's a trivish mockery. 
What is that? <laughs> the, the, remember that old commercial? It's a travesty. It's a sham. It's a mo- it's, it's, it's a, a travesty travesty mockery. I've never seen that. That's awesome. You've okay. never seen the Travis mockery commercial? No, Bobby Chesney. I know. Well, I'm par- uh, clearly not. I think we've established I'm not watching enough. Uh, this is an TV. old one. I used to watch more. Um, so, first of all, any records that Miller the impeachment Light. inquiry has don't necessarily come directly from first-hand investigative efforts of the impeachment inquiry, right? They mm-hmm. could have and do have lots of stuff that's the fruit of investigations by uh, the Justice well, Department right. in these earlier cases. Totally. So there's that. There's that. So the, so, so the phone records didn't necessarily, but even if they're they not did. necessarily the fruits of a congressional subpoena. But even if they did, the, the, the person who I think you and I both agree is the world's leading expert on the Stored Communications Act, uh, Oren Kerr, now at Berkeley, mm-hmm. right? Um, Oren has a pretty good thread up on Twitter about why he thinks the limits in the Stored Communications Act wouldn't apply to congressional subpoenas. Right, and the key predicate to that point is that the Fourth Amendment doesn't protect phone records because these are third-party hey. records. The only question is what statutory protections are there? Well, the Stored Communications Act definitely limits in various ways how the it modulates how right. the government okay. can, for its lawful investigative purposes, get records. But Here, it defines the government as the executive branch. Right, and, and, and so Orrin's analysis is basically congressional subpoenas aren't restricted by the Stored Communications Act, therefore they're available in response to lawful process. And this As was. long as the subpoena is valid on its face, right? right? Which is part of what's being litigated right. in all these cases. And so probably this was the fruit of an earlier yeah. criminal investigations uh, grand jury subpoena. Um, but maybe it was a congressional subpoena. But either way, it's probably consistent with law. And now, I would go stronger, which is I, it is consistent with law. Because even if, like, let's play this all out, right? Even if... Um, if the essay doesn't apply, right, the argument that the fourth, even if you, you want to say- well, there, well, there is no good Fourth Amendment argument here unless you're calling for the wholesale overturning of decades of third-party doctrine. But not just third-party doctrine, Bobby, Fourth Amendment standing, right? Because- oh, Well, if you're complaining from the Trump perspective instead of but, the Giuliani no, but perspective. That, they both are, right? I mean, so the both of the tweets I read are complaining about how, you know, they got they got Trump's phone records by subpoenaing Giuliani, right? Or by subpoenaing Giuliani. They, you know, Trump is implicated through Giuliani's phone records. It yeah. is a staple of Fourth Amendment doctrine, going back to what, Rackus versus Illinois? right in the 70s um, that I don't have standing to object to a search of your property that reveals my stuff I think that I think that's that's right I think the key thing though is to focus on there's nothing the fourth amendment doesn't protect dialing records also only true. statutes do and the statutes are designed to facilitate lawful investigative measures and there are plenty of candidates that are the only plausible way yeah. this would have happened anyways so the whole thing is fake and once fake. again fake, fake. And, and once Faux. again right and once again the fact that this is where the narrative is as opposed to yes this happened but it's okay is pretty revealing about like what they actually think about the merits of the charges against the president and the people around him. And I just want to say, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I, I think it may that, not be, but that it's a game to try to distract and to de- delegitimize. And it's the latest round of it. I think we play into it a little bit by having too much discussion about yeah. it. All right, um, so let's move on. Yeah, okay. Although, um, I mean, Julia, if I'm Giuliani, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you know, he's, he's I'm looking over my shoulder. Hey, a little he's bit. got plenty on his plate of that variety. Um, what else is there to say, if so anything, about... we had a couple of judicial developments, right? So yeah. we had um, the Supreme Court, I think, since last we recorded, right? Did, no, I don't remember. Yeah, I, yeah. So uh, issued a stay. Deutsche Bank and... Right. Yeah. Well, so we also... So the Second Circuit... Right, oh, I'm sorry. Supreme Court in the state. Yeah, yeah. So the Second Circuit yesterday um, issued a 165-page ruling in the Deutsche Bank case. Now, Oof. hard to keep all these cases straight, but this is Con- also... Well, but conveniently, they all come out the same way, so it's easy in that respect. <laughs> Indeed, Trump loses. Yes. Um, but the Deutsche Bank case is another... Con- 
can so the first Second Circuit case we've talked about in this context is the Vance case, which is a subpoena from New York County District Attorney Cyrus Vance. This case is a lot more like the D.C. case. This is a congressional subpoena, a series of congressional subpoenas to Deutsche Bank and Capital One, again, for financial records relating to President Trump. Um, and the divide, basically, I mean, this one's more nuanced. So the panel was basically unanimously of the view that the subpoenas were um, prop, were legitimate, or at least that the, that the president hadn't met his burden to get an injunction against the subpoenas on the ground that they were facially illegitimate. But Judge Livingston dissents in part on the ground that she thinks the subpoenas might be overbroad, right? And that there might be a justification for some tailoring on remand. Um, you know, I she may be right. I mean, I think this one goes up all the way. So I think it'll be overtaken by events, right? Because the um, the government, uh, Trump, government, the tr- uh, President Trump's cert petition in the Mazars case is due tomorrow. And um, the issues there will fully encompass the dispositive issues here? I don't know that they'll fully encompass them, but I think they might. I mean, so the Mazars case in the D.C. Circuit is a much more frontal assault on Congress's subpoena power. You really don't see that in the Second Circuit decision from, yes- from yesterday. Um, and so, you know... What's interesting is that the Second Circuit case suggests a narrower way that one could potentially rule for Trump, that the, you know, subpoena in general, fine, but actually needs to be more precise because it's the president, we've got to be careful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not really in the D.C. case. And so, I, you know, this case would have to hustle to get on track with Mazars because that cert petition is going to be filed tomorrow. I could see a world where the court consolidates Mazars with the Deutsche Bank case, yeah. uh, regardless of what it does in the Vance case, and sort of does the big, you know, takes the Mazars case as the structural issue and takes the Deutsche Bank case as the sort of case-specific applicational question. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, But, I mean, whew, it is... They could also just deny cert on this. I mean, they could. You know, I feel like if that was where we were going, they wouldn't have granted a stay in the Mazars case. But, you know, we we might start to have a better sense of this by as soon as next Friday, December 13th, because that's the conference where I think the court will start, you know, working out some of this. Yeah. Wow. All right. The the race is on. There does seem to be increasing broader public awareness of a point that we've been hammering on this whole time, which is the name of the game isn't necessarily to win those cases. It's to have the litigation be protracted so that whatever happens, it happens post-election. So that's right. But I actually think that if that's the nature, I mean, so this is a a, a conversation I've been getting into with folks on Twitter, which is, you know, there are a lot of folks who see any single delay as a huge win for Trump. And I understand that mentality, but I actually think that it's increasingly clear that Trump is going to lose at least one of these cases by next June. Yeah. Um, no, I, I do think he'll he'll. So then the interesting question is: Is there a way in which the implementation, the execution of the order um, that then produces the records, right, and then the process is, is there enough time to where by the time the records start bubbling up and yeah. people can really process them? Will there be enough time to have a meaningful impact if there's relevant Real, information, yeah. as we all tend to think well, there spe- is? Especially if the impeachment process has sort of run its course by then. Yeah, no, no this, is, this isn't about the impeachment, yeah, right? The it's definitely going to be about the election. I, mean, I how- think if it, if it drops in June, yeah. then you got July, August, September. Well, keep um, in mind, and, right, and the, 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 the recipients of the subpoenas in all of these cases have said they will comply with a court order, yeah. right? So it's not like the president could turn around and drag his feet again, right? right? He would have to go back no, to it's court. It's a question of whether they, well, yeah, first of all, could he gum it up with some sort of a follow-on distinct issue? I mean, he could try. I, I'm sure. Sh- 
I predict he'll try. Hopefully, it won't actually matter because I think that at this point, right. you know, this is getting getting to be a little ridiculous to try to insulate to this extent from all possible forms of inquiry. Uh, well, it is. What I, it I is. agree. Listen, I agree with that, but I also think that there is there is to su- if at the end of the process he loses, right? There's some value in the Supreme Court not looking like it's hus- not you know look in the Supreme Court according procedural deference mm-hmm. and procedural respect to the president, all the more so if he's going to lose on the merits. So um, I guess that's it for Trumplandia. <laughs> Should we talk about Adam? Although, I mean, yeah, I mean, right. There is, there is his, his excellent, awesome trip to NATO. Uh, yeah, I think the less said about that, maybe in the, uh, the sort of interpersonal dynamics, Check. the better. Uh, Adam Hassoun. Yeah. So back in episode 116, we noted that he had completed. We were a, all over that. Oh, we were we were on top of it. 15-year sentence he got at, upon conviction in a, in a case that uh, was more famous for his Jose co-defendant, Padilla. Jose Padilla. Uh, Hassoun, I went to some of that trial. Oh, yeah, because you were in, I was, I was in Miami, Miami at the time. So here, here's a critical thing to understand about that trial because it gets lost in a lot of the coverage. As we emphasized then, his 15-year sentence was not for you know writing a check to uh, you know an FTO, a foreign terrorist organization. He was convicted for a murder conspiracy plot, Section 956A of the U.S. Code, convicted of a murder conspiracy plot. This isn't some situation in which nothing's really been proven to suggest he's personally dangerous. Um, he was here originally in the United States on a visa. He had overstayed. It was not lawfully in the country when all this unfolded. The guy's born in Lebanon, but Lebanon does not recognize him as a citizen. He's a, he's a Palestinian. The West Bank, uh, last I'd heard, the West Bank authorities were perfectly happy to take him back, but Israel, which controls the issue, is not perfectly happy to have him back. So he's stuck. And he was in a uh, an immigration hold status upon serving his time. Uh, habeas Which, by the way, that that part is not unusual, right? It is not right. unheard of for individuals who are out of immigration status upon the conclusion of their criminal sentence to be transferred to the custody of, right? The, oh, absolutely, right. no. That's 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 exactly what should happen yes. for a non-citizen who has no right to stay. Um, we knew in back in episode one sixteen, and because the habeas litigation already begun, it, that everyone understood that this is a question of like, is he ever going to be able to be actually? removed from the country and at some point does that become an unlawful indefinite detention the habeas litigation was teeing up that issue when recently his status changed steve what what is this new mystery status so we had speculated right and so when we talked about this first time we had speculated because it looked like everyone was dancing around what we thought was the real question which was whether he was going to be held under the auspices of section 412 of the usa patriot act 8 U.S.C. 1226A, and that's 1226, no parentheses, A. Um, big A. Big, uh, well, actually, it's a little A. Little A. But, little a. but no parentheses, A. God, I hate all that stuff. Yep, so, yep. Uh, come on, Office of Law Revision Council. Um, but the, the, so we had speculated because it wasn't, t- the government had not yet asserted that that was the, you know, the government had said we're holding under this regulation. Right, but they um, hadn't yet invoked, because the government had never right. invoked no. the USA Patriot Act provision that in some circles were intensely controversial, but it's just kind of fallen by the wayside over time for non-use. Which is why I wrote about it five years ago. And you said, hey, it's still there. But no, I, I said, no, it's, it's, a, it's an obscure thing we're never going to have to worry about. Let never me write have about to use it. it. This is the story of my life. So um, here we actually have the first official test case for Section 412. Now, what is Section 412? Indeed, enlighten so, us. Um, you know, rather than have you guys go back and listen to Episode 116, although you should, it's a good one. Um, here's the basic way it works. 
the central authority of Section 412 is a seven-day um, detention authority on the part of the Attorney General for any non-citizen whom the Attorney General believes represents any kind of a threat to national security. And sort of a sweep them up for a week. Right. And um, the best way to think about this authority is it's already the case under a, a 1990-something Supreme Court decision called, County, maybe 1990, County Riverside versus McLaughlin, um, that the government's usually allowed to hold suspects for 48 hours before it has to charge them. Um, right, that that 48 hours is the constitutional limit for holding someone without charging them. And so one way to understand Section 412 is it's pushing 48 hours out to seven days for non-citizens where the attorney general's reason for arresting them is because he believes they pose a threat to national security. Um, that's not what's happening with Hassoun, right? What's interesting is what's supposed to happen after that. So at the end of the seven days, the statute says um, the attorney general has three choices, right? Release the guy, charge him with a crime, or place him in immigration detention subject to removal, right, or initiate removal proceedings against him. And what's interesting about Section 412 is in the third of those options, Section 412 creates a periodic review procedure where it says um, the, you know, you can have, it, it doesn't expressly authorize long-term detention, but it clearly contemplates long-term detention because it says every six months, right? Um, the attorney general can recertify that his removal is not practicable and that his release would pose a threat to the national security of the United States. And each of those recertifications is subject to judicial review. How'd I do? That's perfect. So now he's the first one in that status. And, and I, I mean, we're past the seven days, right? So we're into the, we're into the periodic review detention that is, you know, all contemplated by Section 412. So you say every six months, right? Every six months. So, so, so the, in section, about five or six months, there's going to be a proceeding of some kind? Well, presumably he's all, I mean, he can bring up an, an ab initio habeas petition. I think he already has. Um, I think it's all, what, in the Northern District of New York? Oh, no. One of those upstate, you know, my, my parents are of the, of the ilk that, you know, Upstate begins at 96th Street, right? <laughs> um, so the 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 question is, right, is Section 412, insofar as it authorizes this kind of potentially indefinite detention, constitutional? And that's actually two questions. It is a procedural due process question about whether Hassoun is receiving enough review. Yeah. Um, and I think there the courts are probably going to say yes, right, because by statute he's guaranteed periodic detention. The more interesting question is the substantive one, um, which is, does the government have the authority to hold immigrants or non-citizens um, indefinitely on the sole ground that the attorney general has certified that they pose a threat to national security? So this is the Zadvitas question. Right. And so in 2000, in the, in the very last decision the Supreme Court hands down before 9-11, the Supreme Court in a case called Zadvitas or Zadvitas or Zadvidas, I've heard all three, um, Zadvitas is how you put whatever. Zadvitas versus Davis. Um, the court says that the due process clause generally imposes a six-month limit on how long a non-citizen who is facing removal can be held pending his removal if there's no reasonable prospect that the government's going to be able to effectuate his removal in the you know in the near term. Hassoun's a textbook case of why effecting effectuating removal is going to be difficult. Um, but Justice Breyer's majority opinion in that case famously reserves what would happen in a case of terrorism or national security where there might be special justifications for longer term detention. Yeah. And so insofar as the government went looking for a test, if, if the government were to go looking for a test case Here to try is. to 
to combine the footnote in Zadvidus, which holds open that question, yep. and match it with the Patriot Act Section 412 provision in a way that, that might well hold up. Um, I wouldn't say this is a perfect one, but it's a pretty good one, given that he is quite literally convicted of conspiring to join a jihadi conspiracy to commit murder, uh, broadly speaking, for, for uh, al-Qaeda-type goals. Although, critically, the, the indictment there, I say al-Qaeda-type because the indictment that he was convicted under right. and the charges didn't specify al-Qaeda as the precise organizational hook, but all the facts, all the evidence actually was about literally going and trying to join and become part of and recruit people to participate in, including Jose Padilla, the al-Qaeda-run and funded camps that were operating in Afghanistan prior to 9-11. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good case for the government, right? But it's also, you know, the other question for the government is, but wait a second, the guy's been in prison for 15 years, right? You know, what's your proof that he's still a threat? I mean, yeah, he was Well, where does guy. the burden lie, right? I mean... And so th- it's the first case. We're going to have to flesh out a lot of this. But, you know, this is, I think, now going to be what we had speculated it might become in episode 116, which is a huge test case for section 412. Because, yeah. you know, 412, I don't think was... Congress did not mean 412 to capture these cases, right? Congress meant 412 to capture cases of, like, folks picked up after 9-11 where the government suspected they were up to no good but couldn't really prove it enough to bring a criminal case. Right, right. I don't think Congress is thinking, hey, 20 years from now, when these, when the guys who we were able to bring criminal charges against have served their sentences, what happens? But, right, but I also think this is, close, this, this is still the, the same idea, right, that there's a class of non-citizens who, for legal reasons, we can't effectuate their removal, and the gov- and we can't prosecute them for anything else or anything new. It's fair to say what's the real substance of what's going on here is an assertion of a latent immigration removal power claim that deals with uh, the, the the category of stateless or otherwise uh, not practically removable people yeah. who nonetheless are dangerous. Whether there was 412 or not, you could certainly have seen a Zadvidis-type uh, detention in that circumstance. And for our purposes, what 412 is really doing is is at least it's helping to address the potential procedural due process yes. problem while leaving us in the same place we always would have been. Is this a substantive due process I think problem? That's, I think that's probably right. And yeah. in that regard, I think 412 goes a long way to helping the government, right? Yeah, by, exactly. By putting this, this kind of detention on firmer footing than yeah. it would have been if you used the same authorities in Zadvitas. Okay, right? here comes my prediction. Yeah. Hamdi. Government's going to win on the underlying authority to detain, and but then there will burden. be, and well, they'll get sort of a, a quibbling loss on procedural due process, saying, well, over time maybe it's going to scale and you need more process. I don't know, or we need to see what the process is, or the process to be constitutional must include the following elements that the statute itself doesn't expressly say, but it won't matter because what matters is winning on the underlying authority. I think they're going to win, and I, and I think they might cabin it by saying. On the facts presented here where there was a conviction for a murder conspiracy, that case, and we're not saying anything about other cases where no one's been charged or ever convicted of anything. So I, I think they might draw that line and make it a rule for just this one scenario, and, and just like they did in Hamdi. So my prediction, Hamdi. Uh, my prediction, cert denial. After after the after the government wins in the second circuit. Oh, after yeah, <laughs> right. After, so after so I mean, I, I mean, yeah. I, and I think I mean, you know, this is a very different court than the one that decided Hamdi. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I'll amend my prediction to say that everything I said about Hamdi in that ruling um, can be said by the second circuit, and then cert denied. I mean, because because you know Hamdi, you had O'Connor and you had Kennedy, right? And and you know there were there were government authorities that O'Connor and Kennedy were never going to sign a majority or plurality opinion endorsing, and you know. 
trade O'Connor and Kennedy for Alito and Kavanaugh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I certainly don't. I certainly don't think. It sounds like we agree that he's not going to win in the end. Um, not on not on whether four twelve itself is unconstitutional. Whether four twelve is unconstitutional on its face. Um, I, you know, I think there's more I need to learn about exactly what the procedural burden looks like in the habeas proceeding, right? Yeah. In the periodic review, because you know you could imagine. Like you say, a Hamdi, like you know, it's he's not getting quite enough of an opportunity to right, challenge. Right, just sort of this, like I, I feel like there should be this further element that doesn't hey, seem to be there. So, so you mock, you're mocking <laughs> O'Connor's opinion on Hamdi. I actually am, am, am. I'm having fun. I'm a fan of O'Connor's opinion on Hamdi, although of course the right answer in Hamdi is Souter's opinion, but not the prevailing answer. Hey, that's welcome to my life. All right. Um, let's say a little bit about uh, cartel designations because the president. Uh, appeared on Bill O'Reilly's, like, what was it, like an internet radio show or whatever it was, and among other things uh, mentioned, of course, he made it sound like it was something he himself was doing, but what he really means is the State Department's about to update the list of foreign ter- terrorist organizations, and he claimed that it's going to produce designations, he didn't specify which, but for some, maybe one or more Mexican drug cartels. Um now, who knows if that's actually accurate or not. We'll know when we see it. But this is something that's come up before. I went digging around. We've talked a little bit before about legislation. I think Chip Roy had a bill about trying to force this result via legislation. Oh, Chip Roy. I think – oh, I yeah, hey. Um, anyways, uh, I found a lawfare post that I, I wrote in 2011. Isn't that funny? Like, hey, someone wrote a post about this. Oh, it was me. It was me. me. Yeah, I found my own post from 2011 uh, commenting on a, on a similar bill where Mike McCall was trying to, uh, again, achieve this result via legislation. Um, and so I think the key things to say about this are, first, it, it's one question to ask whether statutorily the cartels, one or more of them, can satisfy the definition such that it's legally available to designate them that's a within pretty reasonable question. bounds. Right. That, so that's one question. And yeah. then the other question is, it just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Oh, yeah. Is it is it wise to do it? There's There are an endless number of organizations out there that are eligible for the designation that for a variety of reasons, we don't pull the trigger on that. So a lot of what really counts in this debate is really about U.S.-Mexican diplomatic relations. What will this do to security cooperation? Will it harm it? Will it help it? What's the real payoff here? Is this merely just a domestic political gesture on, on the U.S. government's part that's being sort of ramrodded in from the top or is it or is it a reasonably useful if if ultimately minor further thing that could be done to help advance what I think everyone agrees is an important goal of trying to somehow stem the tide of violence and, and harm associated with cartels which is on full display all the time um, I'll, I'll kind of repeat quickly what I said about the legal aspects I think it's relatively easy to show that cartels, or at least some of them, qualify for the designation. Uh, it's governed by 8 U.S. Code Section 1189. The key elements are as follows. The, the de- Secretary of State is authorized to designate an organization as a foreign terrorist organization if he or she finds that A, it's a foreign organization, so check, B, the organization engages in terrorist activity as defined elsewhere, uh, in the U.S. Code, so we'll come back to that. And then C, that activity threatens the security of U.S. nationals or U.S. national security. Just a quick word on that third prong. Um, there's a lot you can say about the nebulousness of a threatens U.S. national security test. It's easy to see how reasonable people could make arguments kind of uh, 
cutting in favor of that as to the cartels. But it's really easy to satisfy the part of that test that talks about the security of U.S. nationals, especially with the recent death of, of uh, those individuals who were subjected to uh, an ambush in northern Mexico. Um, they got a lot of media attention. There's plenty of other harms as well. So I don't think that actually is that hard either. All the actions in the question of whether cartels, at least some of them, satisfy the statutory definition of terrorist activity. So where do you find that definition? Uh, section 1182, sub A, sub 3, sub capital B. Or you could also look at uh, section 2656F, sub D, sub 2 of Title 22. Yay, fun with statutes. I will not subject you to all the details. Suffice to say that those definitions, if you go pour through their multiple parts, they're really broad. There's stuff in them such as, quote, the use of any explosive, firearm, or other weapon or dangerous device other than for mere personal monetary gain with intent to endanger directly or indirectly the safety of one or more individuals or to cause substantial damage to property. It's real broad, folks. Not hard to show the test is satisfied. Um, this is available. State Department could do this uh, in the past. It could do it now uh, without doing any real violence to the statutory language at all. Um, I think all the interesting questions are whether this is advisable to take this step. Um, but it seems like it's going to happen. Yay. All right. Do you you think it's a bad idea? Because I'm not, I'm not convinced it's a bad idea. I worry about blurring lines. I, you know, I worry, I worry about the sort of the, 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 the slow, quiet, subtle drift, right. Of an authority that starts as being about one very specific cabin phenomenon. And that is therefore used to do things we wouldn't allow to be done or it broader and having it slowly drift to, you know, additional things that, Get, that goes closer and closer to the things that we wouldn't want those authorities to bleed into in the first place. In the abstract, definitely concerned about that. I think terrorism definitional drift is is an important topic. Um, I think the cartels engage in lots of yeah. real deal true blue terrorism. I think that it, you know, let me make an argument that might make you feel better about it. Uh, isn't it a good thing to remind the American public that the phenomenon of terrorism is not specific a, to Islamic, Sunni yes. Islamic extremism that part, that part or to religious motivations. I, I, that, I, I, yes, that to me is the upshot. Yeah. But, you know, I would prefer sort of a, the more that any legislation creates just a whole new thing as opposed to extending the umbrella of the 1189 FTO designation process to cover the cartel. Like, you know, if we create a different category and said this is different, but we're going to have the same penalties, right? I feel maybe a little more comfortable. I don't know. I, yeah. I can see a downside to that too, where it's like we're proliferating all these different yes, designation mechanisms. Although we've already done yeah. that. I mean, like, we I mean, have some of that. I mean, yeah. You know, well, and these guys. SDGTs it, and, right. you know, FN, for narcotics, what, drug kingpins. We have, and, and, and many of the individuals who yeah. run these organizations, of course, are designated as, as such. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's mis- mostly symbolic, but the symbolism matters. And it's we, not, you know, it's it, not entirely it, symbolic because, of course, here, here's where it's interesting. Yeah. We should have led by this. Once the designation's in place, so what besides the diplomatic impact? Well, it creates a whole bunch of tools that then become either relevant and properly used or potentially overused and potentially problematic in the sense that you can now bring material support to Cartel X or Cartel Y charges under 2339B. Um, If these types of charges are used for people who are plainly directly involved in those cartels, I I guess that's sort of where the chips fall, right? That's the whole deal. Um, To the extent that it's used to get people that are steps removed or involved somewhere further down the drug distribution chain, um, I can imagine this turning into this huge new realm 
of material support charges, which there I think we do end up with a little dilution of the utility. Uh, what What it would effectively do is, of course, let's remember that once material support charges are available, it's a crime to provide yourself as a member subject to the direction and control of the organization or as an agent of the organization. Right. That's potentially really sweeping. Yes. And so you could go around and be like, oh, let me see that tattoo on your arm. Oh, I see you're a member of or you're affiliated with this group, which we have decided is right. a, go to a part for, of the go umbrella. To for 10 years. Here's your 15-year sentence. 15 yeah. years now. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. And that's, that's my concern. Right, and that's and the question now is that's that, a real concern. Right, and the and and uh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> backhanded compliments. <laughs> I know. I think my prior concerns. That's like that's like I'm always worried in classic saying. By real, I mean I agree. That that's a good question. Like, like that's a really good question. What you mean? All the other questions. Yeah. What about the really other ones? ones? Yeah, exactly. Um, yes, I. I <laughs> um, we should, you know, whenever we run out of topics, we should actually should do a deep dive on OFAC because I actually think like oh. Office of Foreign Assets Control is one of the more important national security units in the federal government that gets no attention. Totally. Apply to Treasury now. Um, it's, I, I argue that to my students all the time when yeah. they're looking for places to send resumes. OFAC. OFAC. Do it. Um, so real quick rundown on NSD stuff, and yeah. then we're, we're running up against time. And we got to be frivolous. And we got to go learn some Westlaw. We got a 40-year sentence in the often discussed case of Ali Karani, uh, a guy who was in the United States. Um He's been sentenced for, uh, I'm going to read from the, the sort of the DOJ press release, uh, 40 years in prison based on terrorism sanctions and immigration convictions arising from his illicit work as an operative of the Islamic Jihad organization, Hezbollah's external attack planning component. Uh, this case is mostly notable in the news because there was a much read New York Times article talking about how there was an attempt by FBI to turn him before he was prosecuted. So some people feel like, oh, he's being punished for not cooperating. Um, I, you know, you can say that every time the FBI first tries to turn somebody, then decides, well, they won't turn. Let's continue with what we would have done otherwise, which is prosecute. So I'm less persuaded by that. But 40 years is a big deal. There's all kinds of details about um, Hezbollah's external operations. And it's always a useful reminder that there was a time when we talked about them as the A-team. And there was a reason for that in terms of danger. Uh, I'll note, too, United States versus Zachary Clark, a Brooklyn man who's arrested for attempted provision of material support to the Islamic State. Um, we're talking about distributing propaganda for the Islamic State, instructions on making explosives, um, with an eye towards instigating an attack in New York City, which, of course, always it's important with material support cases to look into the details. Is this somebody who was helping others be dangerous, foolishly or purposely? Or was this someone who was themselves a potentially dangerous person? Um, sounds like a disturbing case. And let's stop there and get frivolous. Let's get frivolous. Okay. Um, can we start actually with a little bit of college football playoffs? Uh, okay. College football stuff. So obviously Ohio State is – maybe they'll get upset, but I think no matter what, Ohio that team State – down south. <laughs> they seem like certain yeah. to be in the college football Final Four, yeah. even if they lose the the Big Ten championship game, which I don't think they will. They uh, Clemson is not going to lose. You know, th- Clemson's not even playing. They haven't played a ranked team Virginia? yet. Is it Virginia? It's Virginia. Now you never know. You could have an upset, and and then then they'll be out. I think yes. despite being defending champs, well, that'd be a bad beat, upset. They haven't beat anybody. I think they're actually probably a very dangerous team. They just haven't happened to have had ranked opponents. Right. Um, it's like so, when Notre Dame. Well, no, Notre Dame actually does play people, but anyway. So I think Clemson and Ohio State are in. Yeah, whoever obviously wins, whoever, whoever wins, wins the, the SEC the, the is Alabama in. Georgia game is in. Oh, LSU. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah, there I go. Yeah. Whoever wins the LSU Georgia game is in. Now, I think. I think. So if I think LSU, LSU is, wins, then you probably give the fourth sport, spot to a non-SEC team. I think. Since what Alabama, if it's really close. What if it's like? What if LSU wins like 27-24 in right. two overtimes? Right. So do you turn away? 
Uh, okay, so Oklahoma. So we, let's let's assume, we have to say who wins the other conference. So because well, if it's if it's anybody other than Oklahoma and Utah, they're not going to get to the conference. I don't know. I think Baylor has an outside chance, depending on how it goes. So let's say Georgia yeah. crushes LSU, and LSU just somehow looks terrible. Georgia's obviously in. Does LSU still get to yes, be in after getting crushed? Yes, it's the other way around. Suppose LSU crushes Georgia. Right. Right. So, so in that case, I think definitely Georgia's not in. No. no. Well, that depends. Right? If they get crushed. So LSU. Let's so let's say LSU beats Georgia. Right, um, and let's say Oklahoma and Utah win. Right, I actually think it's a mess at that point. Between, it is a mess between because because right. it's Utah, further proof of why there should be Utah might an have eighteen well, playoffs no or kidding. at least a sixteen playoff. No eight. Utah. I mean Utah would Utah would have a pretty good argument that they have a very good that you know they're a one loss winner of a major conference with like lots of good stuff on their resume. Right, Oklahoma would be able to say we avenged our only loss. Yeah, right. right. In our conference championship yep. game because isn't their only loss to Baylor? Yep, yep. exactly. Right. Um, and so whereas, I think it's a coin flip between Utah and OU at that point. OU's got the like sort of reputational prestige, maybe which could schedule. help it. Yeah, um, arguably a better schedule. Right. Utah's got sort of the novelty argument. Hey, show some parity, get us in there. Yeah. Um, so that would sort of be the eyeball test, and you can't really critique it one way or the other because either I, one's a, I do a reasonable think, though, pick. I mean, listen, if Oklahoma and Utah both win. And so you've got two one loss, or Baylor have Baylor would have one loss. Well, Baylor would have one loss too, right. and, and Baylor would have right. twice beaten right. OU so at that have, point. If you have if you have a one loss, I, I I just I have a hard time taking a two loss team at, who that didn't win its conference over a one yeah. over a one loss team that did. I agree. So that's why I don't think Georgia can get in unless they win. Now, and, or or they lose, and Oklahoma and Baylor play a mud bowl, right? And Utah loses to whoever the heck Utah's even playing in the Pac-12 championship game. I guess it's Oregon. They're right? playing Oregon, which you know is having a pretty good year. Yeah. So I think what's most likely to occur is or, and Oregon's having a great year until they got until they got yeah. hermed. <laughs> I think that uh, I think that you most play to win the game. Sorry. Yeah, so I don't think we actually can really say like what's most likely to happen here. This is really up for grabs for the fourth spot. Yeah. I don't want to see two SEC teams in no. there when you have two, two Power 5 Conference winners sitting on the sideline. But that, I think, but I think that's BS. I think we're going to get two SEC teams if Georgia wins. We very well might. And if it's close, then arguably that would be the best four teams. I'm not saying that's not the case. But no, no. It, but it, what's the what's the point? A team playoff, point? right? So I know. You right. do. So here's what you do: you do the five power. You do automatic, you know, automatic bids to the conference to the champions of the five power five conferences. Right? Yeah, right. You do an automatic bid to the top ranked conference champion of a non power five conference, the Boise State. You know, Whoever's not, highest ranked, it'll be Memphis this year, right? So it's Probably. not a, it's not making a six power conference. It's saying of the rest, whoever's the best, uh, whoever's whoever's ranked and then, highest, and then two at larges, two at larges. That's it, it's a no brainer to do that. That's right. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love that. And, and it creates one more game for each of these teams. Yeah, yeah. And let's get and hey, I have an idea. How about we get rid of some of these lousy toilet bowls? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, right? Raise the threshold for bowl eligibility to set to seven or eight wins. No, that'll never happen. There's, I know. there's no. I, I meant get rid of one of the early season warm up games there by oh, plays. Well, that too. Or in the SEC, the mid season uh, <laughs> blow off games. All right. Ooh, Cole Hamels is uh, going to the Braves. Really? That just came up with the wires. Uh, who'd they get in return? Uh, it's a free agency thing. Uh, um, so I, I, uh, I, when you see Frozen Two, right, we're going to have to have a debate about what is the greater what of 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 Elsa's two ballads, which one is better? I think it's a no brainer. Okay, I cannot wait to dig into this. I'll try to knock that out this weekend. Okay. Speaking of things though that we have both seen, Mandalorian, Mandalorian. episode four. Okay. Um. <laughs> so okay, is it fair that the the title of this episode should have been the Two Amigos? I mean, seriously. I mean. 
I basically it was, like a was funny cop show. I actually kind of appreciated that it was just so ham-handedly formalistic, straight out of like, hey, pull off the shelf, the standard formula, kind of the 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 buddy cop element, yes, but especially the western sort yes, of the save western. the save our village. Right. It was totally made fun of. Here, in come three the, here come the savages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here come some savages. Let's make them. In this case, we'll make them dog people. Uh, with an anthropomorphized version of, of a, you know. And sometimes and, they have a scout walker. And, and also, and here's a whole bunch of people, we've never studied the Battle of Endor, so we don't know how to take down, in a crowded forest, um, this particular type of Imperial vehicle. Man, the, the, the no, Ewoks no did it. strategy from the Ewoks. The Ewoks did it with like five minutes of planning. <laughs> Come on. Um, no, but in this case, we've got to we've we've got to plot 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 lure them into this little moment of drama. Will he? Won't he? Stick his foot into the indeterminately deep pool of water. Why would he ever do that? Come on. Well, also, how do they know that, that of all the places to come out of the forest? How do they know he's coming out at that exact yeah, spot? Exactly. Um, so there is that. There's also the um, if there's a if there's some way to track baby baby Yoda, right? Wouldn't it? Be, I mean, like, man, I was like, all right, I guess we're leaving. It's like, how about finding the track? Oh, yeah, how, like, is there? Is it like he knows because he was in the guild? Like, no, there's no way he's got like a genetic taint we've we've identified. But or so something. then, how is he ever going to hide from anyway? No, it's ridiculous. Um, and and they they throw they threw me a little bit of a bone when they got uh, what's her name to talk a little bit about what happened after the Battle of Endor. But it yeah, was that was so, nice. a little inside, it was like so cryptic. I, I was a shock trooper, yeah. and uh, you know, up, I, know what we were doing. I didn't want to do this. Or, was this like a hint that like the the new republic basically, same as the old boss, Maybe. got involved in some stuff that wasn't so pretty? Maybe. Um, could there be some moral ambiguity on the on the two sides coming out there? Um, they really just kind of embraced all the tropes, the really lame tropes of like there's like. Hey, here's the widow with the kid, and the kid loves you wait, and wait, your. So, prior- are you are you coming around to my position on the Mandalorian? Right. No, I look. I don't think the prior episodes were this in your face with the tropes, but this was ridiculous. Tropy. It was. It was. It was tropical. If <laughs> tropical. You it was tropical. Um, I enjoyed it up to a point, I guess, but yeah, it, you, it's so you, formulaic. I now accept that all this is. It's a Disney movie. It's like a Disney cartoon being done with some cool live action and lots of fun little Star Wars-y shout-outs. It's nothing more than that. Or maybe they'll occasionally throw in the occasional gritty moment to try to reclaim a feel of grittiness. But this was this might as well have been a cartoon. So, in other words, meh? You're coming it around to meh. Episode four was meh. Meh. I'm disappointed that they didn't go gritty. I wish HBO had this. HBO could make this so good. I mean, shoot, look what HBO's doing. I mean, this is why it's too bad you're not watching Watchmen. Because yeah. what HBO's doing to Watchmen is... Yeah, is all right, I'll get balls. there. I'll get there. Um, man, you got a lot of TV to watch. I do, which is why it doesn't happen at all. Well, good thing your your, your classes are over. Yeah, I taught my last class just now. Yeah, yeah. Now I gotta go write the exam. Yeah, I've got Woo. one more... Con- I've got two more con law classes and one more seminar. So I'll be, I'll be there on Monday. All right, excellent. And we've uh, got both got lots of writing to do over the really, break. Really, really, it's the break. The break. Yeah, exactly. I was like, ah, oh, you don't do anything for all those weeks? Like, are you kidding me? All right, enough. You've got a hard stop in a few minutes. And, uh, and, and, go and you have to go write an exam. Yeah. <laughs> or eat pizza. Or eat pizza. Um, you have pizza? What, what, what pizza? Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to try 40 North. Oh. Have you been there? I have not. So it was a food oh, truck. Wait, I ha- wait, no, I have been there. The one on, um, on it's 9th right, and Lamar. It's right by book people. Yeah. yeah it's good. Is it okay? They have um they have a um a spicy honey pizza that's like amaze balls. Oh, interesting. Yeah, if All you right. like spicy food. Yeah. Um. Well, enjoy. I'm going to see what lunches for the Westlaw. I, I suspect <laughs> lunch for the Westlaw presentation will not be Box forty dollars. Anybody? Indeed. Uh, he's at Bobby Chen. I'm, I'm at underscore. No, I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL <laughs> Podcast. Um, stay safe out there, Baby Yoda.
Adios. <laughs> <laughs> ah!